I am clearly no physicist, right? Don't say amen to that. But um, still, my understanding is the second law of thermodynamics, law of entropy, uh, states that things are basically, that things are going from a state of organization to a state of chaos. Things don't get better. Things just get worse. Uh, The law of entropy is alive and well in my life. Um, I think it's a DNA thing. It was alive and well in my, my dad's life. My, my, my father had several dadisms that myself and my brothers, every time we get together, we'll start down that road of uh, quoting my father. But one of my, 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 my father's dadisms uh, was this. And whenever my dad would say something profound, he'd always, you know, start off with son. You know, he just had this, this southern son, whether sons were around or not. Son, I'd say, son, you can't win. You just can't win. And my dad was like this big Eeyore complex. But as I've grown in life, I realize that there's a lot of truth to the law of entropy. My father's profound philosophy, you can't win. You know, I, I look at our house. When we bought our house, we put in this stone wall in the back, in the back kind of like to protect the water coming at the house. And it was beautiful for a while, but it is crumbling right now. And it's going to be a big old chore to fix. Not only that, I've got this pipe drain thing, French drain, to take the water away from the house. Well, the Rotorooter guy said that he thought that it had caved in. So that's going to be a big old chore. On top of that, I've got this small living room, but it's, it's small, but it's like five times taller than it is small. And so about two miles up there, like about this side, I have got this ceiling fan up there that's broken. And the only way you're going to be able to, no ladders, the only way, we're going to have to build a Tower of Babel kind of scaffolding thing to get to this thing to, to fix it. And every time I I turn around in the house. Something else needs to be painted or fixed or, or changed. Uh, Teresa says, you know what? I do the laundry. I make the bed. I, I, I wash the floors. I do the dishes. And then three months later, I got to do it all over again. You know, it's just this sun. You can't win. You just can't. We look in our garage. And we, we, we got okay vehicles today. I grew up not on okay vehicles. And my, my daughter was driving a 97 Taurus wagon. And it was a rough ride because the electric windows didn't always work. They could go down, but they wouldn't go back up. But that was kind of okay because there was no defroster. And so whenever it was raining, you had to lower the windows to get some air in there to tie defrost. But then the windows wouldn't go back up when you parked the car. And so it would just get filled with water. No heater in the winter either. And, and there are no day- Flashlights and uh, cream on the whole thing is there was no radio. So I think that when the engine blew up a couple months ago and the whole car was gone, it was probably an okay thing. Then she went out and bought a- another car and we did the wise thing. We took it to the uh, mechanic who looked it over and said, this is a great car. Well, it was shortly thereafter, we brought it in and the guy said, you need new head gaskets on this car. Now, I don't know if you're a mechanic person. I was not. I thought, oh, head gaskets. What could that be? Five bucks, right? <laughs> Thousands of dollars for head gaskets, I, I have found. Uh, so on and then I get a crack in my windshield. I haven't had a crack in a windshield since my 72 Nova. So I go and get that fixed. I get home and Teresa had a rock pop up and crack in the windshield of her car now. And I think, son, you can't win. And I go into my closet and I look at my wardrobe. Stuff that I bought probably 20-something years ago, but it still fits. And, you know, it's, it's okay, but my kids walk in and they see it and they go, Dad, you can't win, right? And then you look in the mirror and you go, what 
happened. I, I went to the, no, seriously, I went to the doctor several uh, months ago and I said, I've got these splotches coming out all over me. He said, yeah, you're just getting old. I said, I, I don't want to just get old. And I'm looking in the mirror and where do these wrinkles come from? And, and yesterday, Teresa gave me a haircut and there was this pile of silver stuff on the floor and I'm going, oh, man, what happened? Son, you can't when I was thinking, oh man, and you know, it doesn't matter how well we take care of ourselves, and we should, we should temple the Holy Spirit, we should, but sooner or later, our body's going to wear out. Sooner or later, you know what, things, we break bones, so we tear uh, ligaments, and we need medications, and we have bumps and bruises and scars and bags and sags and pain, and, and it ju- we just are not what we used to be, we, we know that. It's just not right. Uh, the American Society for um, Plastic Surgeons said that in 2016, Americans spent $16 billion trying to make themselves look better. Again, we, we're kind of looking back for what we could be. It's like that, that uh, fountain of youth thing. We, we know there's a call of wild in our heart. We want to look better. We want to be better. We want to be what we once were. or We want to be what we've never been. But somehow we know we're supposed to be there. And so as we've looked for the fountain of youth over, over the history, I haven't found it. And we've realized that it's just a myth. Son, you can't win. No one gets out of this alive. But God, in his word, says, son, daughter, you can't lose. He says, I have, he says, we're going to talk about it in a minute. He, he says, there is immortality. And if you know me, you don't have to worry about trying to find it. I'm telling you, it's going to be greater and bigger than you could ever have imagined. Now, in the, we find this in the doctrine of the resurrection. Now, let me, our salvation, really three pieces to our salvation. There's justification. In justification, what, what happens is we've come to know Christ. Our eyes are open. We realize that Christ died in our, our place. He, he rose from the dead. We, we surrender. We repent of our sin to him. And at that point, uh, Scripture says we're made a new creature. All of our sin is gone. All of those things that separated us from God are gone. And we are justified. We're saved. We're in. There's no change in that. There's no going back. We are, we are in. We've been adopted into his family. We're his son or daughter were justified. That's it. Second aspect of salvation, though, is called sanctification. We come to know Christ. That's that's cool, yes. But we're going to see him one day. And so we're looking forward to that day. And as we track through life, as we look through his word, and as we try to figure out how he thinks and his values, because when we got saved, we brought all this baggage with us of how we were thinking and stuff that happened to us or stuff that our good friends have told us or we devised on our own, but just all messed up. And as we look, we, we bring our values and our, our world, our life back into view with God's as we continually do that that's sanctification one might say in that regard that we are being saved sanctification but then there's a third aspect of salvation that's called glorification that is when our bodies 
which are not being saved, right? Second law of entry, son, you can't, well, they just keep going down the wrong road. But one day, they will be redeemed. We see this multiple places in Scripture. Second Corinthians chapter 4, you've got the Apostle Paul talking. He says, so we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. If it's sun, you can't wait. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, he's talking about his body, earthly body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. This is his heavenly body. Eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We long to be what we know, called the wild, we're supposed to be. And then just to make sure we don't miss it, in 14, he says this, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Paul goes over this again, Romans 8, 23, and this is all over the place, actually. But in not only the creation, he had been talking about how creation groans, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. It's all believers. We we groan too. We groan inwardly as we wait eager, eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so Paul paints this picture of, of, of the resurrection is where the uh, immortality, the, the fountain of youth, the, the, everything is restored, everything is new. That's where it happens. But resurrection is a tough pill to swallow if you really start thinking about it. It just really kind of make, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so Paul talks to the Corinthians in chapter 15. In the first 11 verses, two weeks ago we talked about this, Paul goes over the fact that Jesus rose from the dead physically, literally. And Paul appeals to his own experience, but he doesn't just appeal to his own experience. He appeals to all kinds of evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Then in verses 12 through 34, Paul kind of goes devil's advocate a little bit. And he says, let's look at the logical conclusion if there is no resurrection. And basically, we're all wasting a lot of time. We could be doing a lot of other things that are, are more in line with truth than what we're doing if there is no resurrection. And now it comes to verse 35 in 1 Corinthians 15. And he's going to answer a really significant question. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Or turn on your Bibles or however you do that uh, these days. And so these guys ask in verse 34, 35, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now, they're not asking this sincerely like I just said it. How were they raised? It's not how they said They're asking, and we'll prove this in a second with Paul's response, but they're asking with a, a snide curl down of their lip. They're asking with some cynicism. They're asking with a, with a, oh, police kind of mindset. 
resurrection from the dead. They know that these people who died, their bodies are decomposing. And some of their bodies were in bad shape before they were buried. And you're going to raise them from the dead? You know, it's going to be like a zombie apocalypse kind of thing. You know, are you serious? Right, Paul Ways. And then Paul responds in verse 36. You foolish person. He's not just calling them names. In the Bible, the fool is one who just doesn't take God into account. He's saying, you're thinking like a pagan. You're not talking. I mean, you know, hello, Bueller. Listen, if God could create the universe, can he not raise someone from the dead? Is this too big of a thing? We're dealing with God here. So you misunderstand some things because this, you take eternity, uh, have an eternity, and you, you, you kind of picture your body now there. And he says, there was not created for your body now. You're going to have to get a whole different body. And so you're mixing the pictures. It's not supposed to work. And so he tells us some things, and probably the most lengthy portion of Scripture anyways that addresses this. He tells us what our resurrected bodies will be like. And the first thing he tells us about it is that our resurrected bodies will have a similarity and a difference to our earthly bodies. When he said, you foolish person, he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. I mean, Paul, of course, is using a uh, agricultural analogy. These guys are into that. They know this. And if you take a corn seed and you leave it on the, the shelf in your barn, big bag of corn seed, and you never plant it, will it suddenly sprout and become corn plants? Well, no. You've got to bury it. And once it's buried, then it will, it will grow. And he's, he's saying there's this continuity thing. If you plant a corn seed, you don't just get a corn seed, you get a corn plant, but you don't plant a corn seed and get cantaloupe. You don't plant a corn seed and get a, a maple tree. You know, there is a similarity there. There, there is a similarity. Who we are. He's saying, you are a seed. You are the you seed. And we love our seeds and we want to protect our seeds. But he's saying, would you think for just a minute, the, the plant, the corn plant is so much more awesome than that little corn seed. And if it didn't die and wasn't buried, it would never become what it could be. Now, could God have just created the whole body thing without us having to die? Yes, he's God. He could do that. But that's not the way he chose to do it. So Paul says there's, there's a, a similarity uh, in who we are and who we will be. But he also says, but there's a difference. There's a substantial difference he refers to. In verse 39, he says, Not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. God's got lots of, God's not locked into one, but he can do all kinds of stuff with, with this thing. Now, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory for the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So there's this similarity and yet this difference. Let's look at Jesus for a minute. 
John chapter 20, verse 11, right? He, Jesus rose from the dead, and first person he runs into is Mary. Now, this is interesting. John 20, read this. He's, Mary's talking to Jesus face to face. I mean, she's right. She knows him very well. She's talking to him face to face, and she doesn't recognize him. She says, sir, thinking him the gardener, if you have taken his body, just tell me, and I'll go get it. She doesn't recognize him. But then Jesus says, Mary, and the lights come on. Oh, Jesus doesn't recognize him at first. John chapter 20, later on in that chapter, Jesus comes to the apostles, and initially they're afraid. They don't, he has to show them his scars before they say, it really is Jesus. In Luke 24, he's on the road to Emmaus. Two disciples. Now, these were not people who knew Jesus from history books or far away. They weren't the apostles, but they knew Jesus personally. And they're walking down the road, and they don't recognize him. They're talking, they don't recognize it. It's not till they're there and starting to eat. I don't know if they saw the scars. I don't know if it's a Holy Spirit thing. He just kind of opened their eyes, but suddenly they realize it is Jesus. John 21, they got these guys who are off fishing and Jesus is there, but none of them recognize it as Jesus. One of the guys finally catches on and says, Hey guys, it's Jesus. And then they all recognize him. Matthew 28. This is such a cool verse. Verse 17. Jesus is just before he ascends. He says, uh, you guys go to the mountain in Galilee. I'll meet you there. Uh, and he's going to give them the, the great commission, right? Going to all the world. Uh, just before that, in verse 17, it says that his apostles were there and they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, personally, if I'm writing a book that I want everyone to buy, I'm leaving that verse out, right? But some doubted. That's a proof to me of the, the, the genuineness of, of Scripture, the truth of Scripture. That's an apologetic to, to me. They did not recognize. And so Jesus, in his glorified state, he had, uh, a, it was different enough that people didn't recognize him, and yet similar enough that they came around that they, that they did. And so there's this continuity, discontinuity thing that's going on with us. It's like a, a, a tulip bulb. Now I ask you, is this a tulip bulb? Is this a tulip? You say, well, n- no, not really. It's, I mean, it's a tulip bulb. I mean, tulips come from those, but that's not really a tulip. And not, not really. And if I just leave the tulip in the, the house, it never becomes a tulip bulb in the house. It never becomes a tulip, right? You've got to bury it. But when we do, uh, a stem comes up and then the bud and then the flower. And it would never have been that way, uh, becoming so much more glorious than just that bulb and that ugly bulb, much more, more glorious. Our moral, our essence is in our earthly bodies. And obviously we're dealing with God here, right? We can only understand so much. Uh, but it's almost like D- DNA, who we are, who you are. Is, is when the resurrection come is, is, is brought up into the new glorified body in a way that you, you, you can't imagine. And so a good question is, well, what, does it, what do our glorified bodies look like? 
What's that about, Paul? Well, Paul goes on with that. Verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is, what is raised, is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so he goes through some different pictures for us. He says, this body that we got right now, this body is perishable. This body is under the curse. It's second law of entropy. We are heading to the grave. Uh, we're all going there, often by the road of, of pain and, and hard things. Uh, that's just the way it is. This is Genesis 2, way back when. God told Adam and Eve this. He says, Lord, God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just one thing, right? You shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, God's not threatening them. He's not saying, man, stay away from that tree because you eat it, man, and you're dead meat. You know, God's not threatening them. He's just telling them the consequences. He's pleading with them, please don't disobey me, because when you disobey, the wheels are going to come off on every level. And, of course, we know what happened, and we live in that today. The wheels have come off on on every level. Our lives are perishable. We, We depend on wheelchairs and walkers and without medication we would be uh, in all kinds of, of hurt uh, we, we have all kinds of issues in our in our life they're perishable but Paul says it will be raised imperishable indestructible bulletproof he says says right now your body's under the curse but you when it's raised you know you're going to be leaving the the chairs and the medication in the the grave because you won't need those any more you are in an indestructible sort of of perspective here your your new body is it, it's it's imperishable you never will grow tired that's kind of cool huh you you will, you will never suffer from a bad night's sleep you you will you will never run out of energy Ever, I just cannot imagine life on that level. Uh, he tells us that our bodies, these bodies, will be sown in dishonor, but raised glorious. Philippians 3. Uh, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Glorious, you know, fascinating word. The word actually is speaking of external beauty. Now, think with me for a minute. How many folk do you know really don't give a rip about how they look? At least at some point in their life... We want to look good, as good as we, we can, right? I mean, whether it's the primping stuff in the mirror. Now, we turn it into vanity. Uh, we turn it into uh, worshiping self. Um, but I can't help but wonder if there's a call of the wild thing here going on. If, if we're longing for that which we lost in, in, in the garden, if we're trying to cover up the way Adam and Eve tried to cover up when they lost the uh, the glory of, of God, glorious, it's, it's radiant, it, it's stunning. You will look more beautiful than you could ever, ever 
I mentioned there are no ugly people in heaven. You will look more radiant. Now, I have a feeling that our understanding of beauty is a little bit different than Hollywood's, right? They've turned beauty into it's a sexual type of thing. Remember Moses comes off in, in Exodus 34, he comes off the mountain, he'd just been with God, and it says that his face was radiant. It was glowing so brightly that people couldn't even look at it. He had to put a veil over it. And Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. Remember Peter, James, and John are up there? And Jesus starts glowing like the sun. I have this feeling that this, whatever beauty is, when we get there, we'll be saying, this is what we were after. We were all be, be wearing that. Paul says that our physical bodies, we sow them in weakness, but we raise them, they'll be raised powerful. Now, make sure we understand we will never be God. We will never be omniscient. We will never be omnipotent. We will never have all power. Today, we have limitations on creatureliness, but also a good number of limitations because of sin. Those sin limitations are gone. And Scripture says that we will have bodies that have a level of power that we have not yet seen. I, I think this is kind of what it's talking about. In Revelation, when the saints get to heaven, they are given white robes. I don't know if we literally get white robes or not. Maybe we do. But I think what it's speaking of is speaking of purity. That's where the beauty will come from. It comes from the inside, right? Uh, we will be made in such a way in our new bodies. No more Temptation. You got those sins that you just wish wouldn't trip you up. That's all gone. You'll never, ever, ever again know the feeling of spiritual failure, of being a loser spiritually. It's all gone. We're raised in power. That's not going to happen anymore. This new body, whatever it's, it's completely like, will be pure in that regard. Martin Luther said this. He said, as weak as it, the human body of believers, is now without all power and ability when it lies in the grave, just so strong will it eventually become when time arrives so that not a thing will be impossible for it it if it has a mind for it. For it will be so light and agile that in an instant it can float here below or on earth or above in heaven. Um, Paul lets us know that when we sow the seed, our body seed, when we die, we, we sow it natural, but we reap spiritual. Now, again, he's not talking about a spiritual disembodied form, like mist kind of floating around. It's a body. Uh, and it's not real easy to, to translate or to interpret because the first phrase, sow it uh, natural, it, it actually says... When you sow your body, you sow a body with a uh, soul. And when you reap it, you will reap a body with a spirit. I think this is what he's referring to. When you and I come to know Christ, uh, 
Ephesians 1, Romans 8, we are, are given the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You don't get part of them. You get all of them. You can't get heart, part of a person. We, we, are, we are given the, the Holy Spirit. But how much of us is given to the Holy Spirit? We've got all the Holy Spirit, but does the Holy Spirit have all of us? This is why the Apostle Paul says you've got the Spirit, but you have to continually be filled with the Spirit. I think it's my picture in my mind. This is like a car. When you come to know Christ, the Holy Spirit's in there, and he's sitting right next to you, and he's navigating. And as long as you're listening to him navigate, you know what? That's being filled with the Spirit. You're listening to where he's leading you, where he wants you to go, how he wants you to respond, what he wants you to do. You're listening to the Spirit. But sometimes I end up listening to the people in the back seat or the guy on the radio or my own head, and I forget, oh, I'm supposed to be listening to the Spirit. So I remind myself, all right, get back in tune with the Spirit. This is why Paul says, keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because we keep being unfilled with the Holy Spirit, right? We keep being on our own. And so when we get to heaven, though, the bodies that we'll have will 100% fully, completely, all the time, be filled max with the Holy Spirit. A lot of pictures on this. Let me just give you one that blows my mind. Uh, in this world, uh, I, I love my wife. I love People, but you, you know what? I don't think it's an issue if I can love or not love. It's more of a degree thing because I'm a scarred person. I, I've got baggage and stuff like everybody else. And so we love, but we love as well as we can. And some people are so broken and so scarred that their love capacity just is not real high. Well, as we think his thoughts, as we're filled with the Spirit, you know what? We can love Max. When we get to heaven, we will love fully. We will experience joy in and out and above and around completely 100%. It's a whole new day. It's what, what Paul is referring to here. Was it uh, C.S. Lewis? wrote in 1949, I believe, from 49 to 57, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Children's story series, seven books. It's in a fantasy-type genre. You might say, I hate that. I, can't, I don't like fantasy genre. But 100 million people have read the Chronicles of Narnia. I've, I've read it at least six or seven times. I was trying to figure out before I came here... Uh, at least that many times. I, I, I love the thing. One day, some, one, of the, one kid wrote C.S. Lewis a note about something that happened in one of the stories. And basically, I think it was about Aslan. They, they were asking questions, and Lewis said this. He said, the whole Narnian story is about Christ. That is to say, I asked myself, supposing that there really was a world like Narnia, and supposing it had, like our world, gone wrong, and supposing Christ wanted to go into that world and save it, as he did ours, what might have happened? The stories are my answers. Since Narnia is a world of talking beasts, I thought that he would become a talking beast there as he became a man here. And Lewis names that talking beast Aslan. That's, that's, the, that's the lion. And then in the last, very last book of the series, very end of the last book of the series, Lewis paints a picture of what... He thinks will happen when Christ returns. Um, I don't agree with all of his theology, but it's just 
intriguing. When Christ returns, these talking beasts and kids and men and women, they end up in heaven, though they don't know they're there yet. They're not sure where they're at. And this is, read you just an excerpt of what he says. So they're, they're there, they're looking around trying to figure out where they're at. And it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run, and they found to their astonishment that they could keep up with him. The air flew on their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. If one could run without getting tired, I don't think one would often want to do anything else. But there might be a special reason for stopping. And it was a special reason which made Eustace presently shout, I say, steady, look what we're coming to. And well he might. For now they saw before them cauldron pool, and beyond the pool a high, unclimbable cliff, and pouring down the cliffs thousands of tons of water every second, flashing like diamonds in some places dark and wild, glassy green in others, the great waterfall. And already the thunder of it was in their ears. Don't stop! Further up and further in, called the eagle, tilting his flight a little upward. (laughs) Well, it's all very well for him, said Eustace. But the unicorn cried out, Don't stop! Further up and further in! Take it in stride! Well, they found that they were swimming straight for the waterfall itself. This is absolutely crazy, said Eustace to Edmund. I know, and yet, said Edmund. Isn't it wonderful, said Lucy. Have you noticed... One can't feel afraid even if one wants to. Try it. By Jove, neither one can, said Eustace, after he had tried it. It says, then they came to the top of the waterfall, and a long valley opened ahead, and great snow-capped mountains, now much nearer, stood up against the sky. Further up and further in, cried Jewel, and instantly they were off again. Well, they slow down, and then the dogs cry out, Faster, faster! So they ran faster and faster, till it was more like flying than running. And even the eagle overhead was going no faster than they. And they went through winding valley after winding valley, and up the steep sides of hills, faster than ever, down the other side, following the river, and sometimes crossing it and skimming across mountain lakes as if they were living speedboats till at last at the far end of one long lake that looked like turquoise they saw a smooth green hill its sides were as steep as the sides of a pyramid and round the very top of it ran a green wall but above the wall rose the branches of trees whose leaves looked like silver and their fruit like gold Further up and further in, roared the unicorn, and no one held back. They charged straight at the foot of the hill, and they found themselves running up it almost as water from a broken wave runs up a rock at the point of some bay. Then they come to these gates, and they stop, and they say, dare we? Is it right? Can it be meant for us? And they they enter in, and once they get in... They come across Aslan. 
And Aslan turned to them and said, You do not look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I am looking so much to a new glorified body. It was in uh, when I get there. One of the things I thought about this a little bit. One of the things is I want to play some football, uh, where I can actually compete here with Tim Tebow, and with I've got a friend who's uh, uh, knows Ben Roethlisberger's uh, pastor. Said that uh, he's a solid guy these days. I play with Roethlisberger. He doesn't have to be on my team. And I'm going to teach the Apostle Paul how, how to play as well. And I'm going to sing it. I'm going to sing in a quartet. Okay, it's going to be Gaither. And it's going to be, uh, I don't know if, I care if it's baritone or, but I'm going to sing with Gaither and with Chris Tomlin and Bono. We're going to have this quartet that's going to be, it's going to, and I'm going to be able to sing well. And I'm going to be hit, able to hit every single note and sing powerfully. It was in 1967 that Johnny Erickson, today Johnny Erickson Tata was in a, a diving accident. She's in high school. She broke her back, a quadriplegic, up to today. Johnny is an author. Johnny is an artist. Johnny is a musician. And by her faith, she's inspired millions over the decades. And I'm, when I get to heaven, one of my plans is I'm going to challenge Johnny to a foot race. That's going to be kind of, kind of cool. When we get there with our new bodies, we're going to think more clearer than we've ever imagined. We're going to say, like the unicorn said, this is what was supposed to be. This is what thinking was supposed to be on earth. We're, we're, we're going to love more deeper. We're going to see sights more fully. We're going to taste things and understand in ways we had never been able to before. Johnny, this, I thought this was insightful. Johnny said this, though, talking about the new, new body. She said, don't assume that all I ever do is dream about springing out of this wheelchair, jumping up, dancing, kicking, doing aerobics. No, I'm looking forward to heaven because of a new heart, a heart that's free of sin and sorrow and selfishness. That beats a new body any day. And God will give Johnny that and then give her a new body that matches that. And us too, if we follow him. Would you pray with me?